Welcome to What in the World, a project initiated by Hungry for Life International. Today's podcast is titled Facilitating and Coaching, and Jess will be interviewing Dave Blendell. So grab your headphones, sit back, relax, and listen as we talk about what it looks like to facilitate meetings and teams. Happy Tuesday, and welcome back to another week of the What in the World podcast, where we talk about all things to do with running a nonprofit. And so we have entered our third part of our three-part series on non-directive leadership. So welcome back again, Dave. Thanks, Jess. So actually, we might do four. We might do a coaching demonstration. I think it's a good idea for a bunch of reasons. We will see which staff we can rope into that because it's not going to be me. (laughs) But We can coach you on why you don't want to be coached. Oh, we could get into the nitty gritty of that. But just to recap on the last couple podcasts, the first one was non-directive leadership talking about internal and external motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic, and um, which one is better to use and why. So if you want to know the answers to that, just go back to the first podcast. We'll repeat that a little today. Okay, great. They do all tie in together. Yeah. Um, The second podcast was all about how to ask good questions and how to be an active listener to get the results you want to get and which leader doesn't want results. So again, if you want to learn more about those things, head back to the last couple episodes. You can watch them. Read read them? No, sorry, you can't read them, but you can watch them. You can listen to them. So the next topic on the docket is facilitating. And I want to set this up a little bit. So Dave, can you explain why facilitating gets its own episode? As we were talking about non-directive leadership and what that was when we were preparing for this series, the ter- that term came up because we were talking about, obviously there's, people understand the concept of facilitation. If you're bringing in an external facilitator, some third-party professional to come in, use facilitation skills. But when we were talking about management and or leadership within a nonprofit, I think that there's a, a very significant place for a senior leader to practice non, uh, non-directive leadership using facilitation skills. Okay. And uh, to clarify, we are talking about non-directive leadership. We're talking about applying this to... Um, okay, no, sorry. I'm, I'm rambling here. But I do want to clarify the difference between coaching and facilitating. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between coaching and facilitating? Or are they the same? While you use coaching skills in facilitation, you use lots of coaching skills in team coaching. There's a there's a facilitative aspect to team coaching. So there's a lot of overlap in the skills mm-hmm. that are brought to most non-directive leadership situations. So an external facilitator is usually brought in because of their expertise in being able to draw information out of the, the group. So rather than a leader being kind of like the stage on the stage, on the sage, the, sa- the, the stage, the sa- on the stage. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm in that mood today. So <laughs> the expert on the stage yeah. or the, the sage on the stage, yeah. you, you more become a guide on the side. And again, clearly easily understood with, if you're bringing in somebody external, but being a guide on the side, if you've got the right people in the room and the right conditions can be a really effective way of leading your team as an internal manager. And so, 
the facilitator is the one who guides the process, whereas the yep. team provides the content. Right. Right? Yeah. The people in the room are experts on their organizations, their lives. The facilitator provides an opportunity with all kinds of skills to be able to draw that out, bring the team together, create an environment where people are talk. all the people in the room are talking about the things that matter to them as a team. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a good point. We're going to talk about key players in a second, too. Yeah. Um, what... Who can benefit? Who can benefit from this podcast? We're specifically we have been covering kind of the nonprofit sector of coaching, non-directive leadership. But I, re- I was telling you before this episode, I use these skills in parenting, mm-hmm. and I think they're actually quite beneficial yeah. to mul- multiple facets of life. So, who can benefit from learning this information? Anybody that's trying to influence a group of people. So, a parent, mm-hmm. our baseball coach a uh, team leader, a, a, a pastor in a church. I mean, any, anybody that's trying to influence a group of people could use all of the skills that we've talked about in non-directive leadership. And it's not that we're never saying, drop all the ways you influence and now only adopt non-directive leadership skills like facilitation, coaching, listening, asking good questions, that that's the panacea of good leadership now. Most people use tools in directive leadership. We're just saying... Okay, expand your toolbox. There's a place for directive leadership in an organization, and we can talk about that later. But the we're just saying expand your tools so you're not your go-to tools aren't necessarily directive skills, but you've got the ability to move to non-directive when the situation warrants it. Mm-hmm. I think what you said is pretty key. Like it's not like you need to drop anything you've ever learned in in influencing. You also have kind of your your conscious or your subconscious will also guide and direct you too there's a a place for you don't have to use the textbook for everything and there's also a place for directive leadership um, in like a training context or uh, parenting context or a parenting don't i know that yes yeah so yes thanks for clarifying that so what skills does a good facilitator need similar to coaching the, the foundational skills are listening to a group and then asking appropriate questions to the group. And so I would say listening and asking good questions are key skills. Being able to read the room, like emotional intelligence, is a really important skill in group facilitation. Because on one-on-one coaching, you're, you're reading the person and getting your cues from the person. But once you put a group of people in a room, the dynamic completely changes. Mm-hmm. And now you're not just reading a person you're reading the room of people so someone gets super quiet when they've been participating before and what are you going to do about that in your facilitation because something's obviously happened with that person right so and that's all about emotional intelligence so okay question uh, about emotional intelligence yeah is it god-given or can you learn it (laughs) i think you have somebody in mind as you're asking that question (laughs) no (laughs) nobody in my life just a question. <laughs> yeah, I think for sure emotional intelligence can be something that... <laughs> Shoot, you came me away. I think for sure we can we can all develop better emotional intelligence. I think if someone can feel... like People have said to me, is empathy something that's learned or do you have it or not have it? Which I struggled with for a while. And then somebody... I heard someone talking about empathy or I was reading about empathy and, and, and the influencer said... If you have the ability to feel, you have the ability to empathize. 
if you have the ability to feel, I believe you have the ability to become emotionally intelligent because we all have emotions. Mm -hmm. And so... Some of us have less. (laughs) (laughs) Or are hiding them better than others. (laughs) True. Yeah. They're just hidden. They're just hidden. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Um, So many questions about facilitating. Who are the key players in a facilitation? It's first of all important that the facilitator know what their role is and that they communicate to the group what their role is. They're not coming as, as the team leader. Once a facilitator starts to act like a team leader and starts to get too involved in the content of what's happening in that room, the key leader in the room is going to feel minimized. Mm. And there's a feeling of direct threat to their leadership. So it's important to understand the leader in the room, the people in the room, are the experts on the content. You're the expert on the process. And so that takes some self-regulation to not not start leading, especially if you're a leader. And so understanding who the people are in the room as it relates to to that is super important. Uh, who else do you want at your table? Because I know that it's pretty crucial to have the right people in the room. So who do you want? I love the term that's picked up more in these days. Nothing about me without me. Nothing about me without me. Nothing about us without us. Okay. So the general principle is if, if the initiative you're discussing affects people, have more people in the room or representatives of the people mm. that the issue affects be able to be in the room and contribute to that conversation and default to more, not less, mm-hmm. which is often a threat for leaders because we sometimes think the more people we add to this room, the more the harder it's going to be to get what I want to have happen because I have to now manage eight people versus three mm-hmm. because leaders often go into a discussion or a meeting with stuff in their head they've already decided is the best way to do things and they then say well my job is to get everybody to agree with me mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> super not healthy leadership mm-hmm. but if you're taking a facilitation position you really could have as many people in the room as the situation warrants and still okay. end up with the best solution for the group and is it important that everyone gets a turn talking yeah key point in establishing psychological safety in the room because some of the research on researchers on psychological safety specifically define it as one of the aspects of it being that people in the room have roughly equal speaking time and and Obviously, you get people who speak more and the people who speak less, and part of the facilitation skills is to be able to manage that dynamic in the room, pulling stuff out of people who aren't speaking much and uh, gently controlling the people who may be contributing too much. So those are all practical facilitation skills. But as far as going to your question, Mm -hmm. for sure, if you're really going to benefit from the people in the room, you have to figure out ways to get everybody in the room contributing. Yeah, I mean, if you're asking them to sit at the table um, and then you don't ask for their opinion, they might feel like that was a waste of their time. Right. And and we often assume as leaders that if no one's talking, it's because they don't want to talk. Mm. But think about it. Whenever we get out of a meeting and the person that doesn't talk too much comes up to us after mm. or sends us an email and right. says, hey, I had some thoughts in that meeting. And I'm like, ah, oh, why didn't you contribute those thoughts in the meeting? Because they're amazing thoughts. Yeah. That goes to the skills of facilitation. There's lots of, there's lots of tools. There's lots of ways of going about bringing information, bringing people into the conversation that might be quiet, right, and uh, might be beyond today's scope. But 
it's a really important skill skills to have so that everybody feels like they've contributed to a discussion. We're going to talk about a few different archetypes that are generally in a, sure. a facilitation meeting a bit later, and I want to get like some more practical tips on how to pull out answers okay. out of this, the quiet ones. Sure. But for now, um, <clears throat> what about rules of the game? What guidelines do you establish with a group off the team right with the team right off the bat? As we've talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, in previous previous podcasts, unless people who come to a meeting feel safe, genuinely free from um, a, free from feeling a threat to their self worth, psychological safety, trust, words in that realm, unless people feel they can trust each other, then you're really you 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 never have the foundation for a good discussion no matter what good questions you ask, no matter how great of a job you do facilitating, if you don't establish what safety looks like in this meeting, that people can trust one another, you don't have a meeting. You don't have a productive meeting. Mm -hmm. And that takes some real skill. And that's different from group to group because some groups may have established that already. Some groups may have the, the one talker who does all the talking. No one feels safe to talk. You may have had a situation where this more relates to external facilitation and you don't know what you're walking into the team culture that it is. But for an internal leader in an organization, really important that you establish right off the bat, what is it going to take to make people in this room safe to contribute? Hmm. And sometimes we call that a check-in Okay. and we ask the question directly and we use uh, some tech tools so people don't have to identify themselves with their answer. But we, oh, yeah. yeah, we've like, used those. We have like cool. a mentee poll yeah. where people, we ask the question, what will it take for you to feel safe to contribute in this meeting? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're concerned about a lack of safety. Yeah. And people will write, it'll show up on the screen and then I'll follow up and I'll say, does everybody in the room agree that you're gonna act in a way that commits to those things for everyone in this room? That's a great tip. Yeah. For creating safety. It is. And ultimately, the proof's in the pudding. You can't just say it at the screen at the beginning and allow everybody to talk the way they want to talk. You, you as a leader, as the facilitator, need to hold a group accountable to the things that they set on their screen. Right. Uh, and that, that takes some self-awareness on behalf of the facilitator. So safety, that's yep. one rule of the game. Yep. Any, any other rules of the game? What was the question again? Uh, what like what are some guidelines to establish oh. with with the group or team right off the bat like so psychological safety anything else yeah some expectations around contribution if you've established psychological safety now you can say we want to have healthy conflict in this conversation which means speak to issues speak about the issues not about the people and so we keep let the people know right up front we're going to talk about the issues we're trying to solve together mm -hmm. not look to blame people who the issues may represent for you. Mm -hmm. So focus on issues, not people. Uh, we also have a, have have the skills that I was talking about earlier about making sure everybody's a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, knowing when to take a break is really important, not just because it says in the schedule we should take a break, but sometimes the room's tense, people are tired, people are fidgety, and know when to take a break and get people to walk outside or go to the bathroom or get a coffee is mm -hmm. also really important because... It, it kind of lets off the steam yeah. in a room if you're starting to feel that that uh, people people need that mental break. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's lots of other skills related that might answer your question, but that's probably enough for now yeah, okay. to start. Um, side note, 
I'm totally jetting off, but okay. can, can a team leader also be a facilitator? It takes significant self-regulation yeah. for a team leader to be the group facilitator. Right. And so some of the teaching on team coaching and facilitation is sometimes you, you might need to have somebody in the room who's not the leader, but it's going to be willing to act as the leader. Okay. So in a staff meeting, appointing somebody on your staff as the facilitator who's actually going to be focused on facilitation skills, not any outcome of the conversation. Okay. If you've got a if you've got a leader that can be pretty directive and really have a hard time not directing the conversation mm-hmm. because we tend to think that leading is all about directing, mm-hmm. then if that if that leader isn't self-aware enough, isn't skilled, doesn't learn facilitation skills, you might need somebody in the room okay. to be appointed to that role. Okay. And then and then the ability for that leader to be submissive to the facilitator in the room right even though it might not be uh, the leader so it it does if 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 a leader is really committed to inclusion safety mm-hmm. collaboration and they take skills they take they learn skills around non-directive leadership and facilitation and asking good questions i think it's a fantastic idea for the key leader in the room to be the facilitator okay because at, while you're facilitating you're also communicating mm-hmm. that this is collaborative mm-hmm. Have you ever seen organizations where they have like a designated facilitator? I've seen, <coughs> yeah, I've seen some organizations that more heard of them that like somebody different on staff, each meeting will facilitate the staff meeting. So my son works for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and he found out during operations meetings that every leader Every every staff member takes a turn facilitating the staff meeting. Oh, interesting. So like over a year period, you can expect okay. that one meeting a month you're going to be facilitating or leading that meeting. Hey, it's a great way to kind of weed out, like find find your facilitator. It is, and include people, develop mm-hmm. them as leaders, develop the facilitation skills. So I think there's some wisdom in that here. I, I don't facilitate many of our meetings here. Uh, like, for example, our director of operations facilitates our operational meetings, and I'm right. just a participant. Right. Uh, and so related to the question you asked earlier and this very point, mm-hmm. one of the best uh, things, bits of wisdom that I heard about team leaders and being facilitators is Simon Sinek's little clip on Be the Last to Speak. Uh. So if you Google Simon Sinek, Be the Last to Speak, this little clip will come up. Just a one-minute clip that basically says, if you're in the room and you're the leader, <clears throat> best contribution you can make to the room is ask clarifying questions, but be the last person to speak. Hmm. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic advice. Mm-hmm. And then I watched the video, came to my next HFL staff meeting, and I thought, I'm going to really try hard to be the last to speak. I asked the question, and then I shut up. One person spoke, gave some advice. And then guess who was the second person to speak? You? Yep. <laughs> Super hard to remember it in the moment. Right. But it's a skill that I've really been working on. Okay. And what I'm finding is almost every single time I'm the last person to speak, the answer from the answer or the, the solution to whatever we're discussing, mm-hmm. when it comes out, it's it's a better solution than that than I thought of going into mm. the meeting. And I didn't have to contribute it. Everybody else contributed. It came up with it. Together they decided this is the best way to act. And then there's buy-in from everyone because of internal motivation. 
Right. And so it's, it's not that you can never speak, obviously. And there's times where a situation might require some more directive skills like we talked about earlier. Yeah. But trying that concept, be the last person in the room to speak. Hmm. Even be careful about nodding yeses and shaking your head because you're giving indication that you've already made up your mind. And once the leader comes across like they've made up their mind, people will feel much less contribute, much, much less, they'll feel, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll, they'll, they'll be motivated to contribute because they think that the, the leader's already decided whatever right. they've decided. Is that why you sat in the far back corner in our last all staff meeting? You were like right by the door. You were basically out. <laughs> that was to actually open the door for the food oh. coming in. Well, that was very kind of you too. Good tips. Yeah. Um, okay, let's let's take a quote here. A healthy team is a system, just as a corporation or department is a system. A leader facilitator must maintain constant association with the team to support progress. What does that mean? So when I read it, the first thing that came to my mind was micromanaging. But so how how do you take that quote and not like? It sounds like, oh, to be a good leader facilitator, you have to constantly be on, um, be on and t- talking with people and all this kind of stuff. But to me, it sounded just like if I were to do that, that yeah. would come across very much like micromanaging mm-hmm. the situation. Yeah. What's your take on that? There's a lot in that quote. Can you actually read it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A healthy team is a system, just as the corporation or department is a system. Mm-hmm. A leader slash facilitator must maintain constant association with the team to support progress. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you probably don't want me to geek out in the first part of that. But yeah, I love, geek out. I, I love systems theory in organizational behavior. Okay. And that's the concept that everything affects everything in an organization. Oh, boy. Overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why... I won't go down that rabbit hole, <clears throat> but it, I love it because what it, what systems theory in organizational behavior does is communicates to the people. There's no simple, there's no simple solutions. There's no formulas. There's no easy answers. Mm-hmm. Everything that we do will affect some other part of the organization. The most clear, the most clear example for us lately as an organization would be Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, Ukraine dropped in the in our organization the way that it did, and it, it affected everything else in the organization. And and so all organizations are systems, systems of relationships. So I'll stop there on systems theory. But the last part of that quote, which is for the leader to stay connected, mm-hmm. read that last part again. Uh, must maintain constant association with the team to support progress. Yeah, and what I love about that is it's it's really non-directive leadership. You're supporting the progress of the team. You're connected relationally to this team to support the progress. You're not giving directions. You're allowing stuff to come to the surface, stay connected to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but leaders who think in terms of simple systems or directive leadership would say, I'll speak, you do. And support doesn't really need to be part of that because I'm telling you what to do and then you're just going to go do it. Right. But if you're thinking along the lines of non-directive leadership and understanding the organization as a system of relationships and factors that all interact together, mm-hmm. the leader's got to stay connected to the system but not dominate the system, not micromanage, mm-hmm. not not apply their formulas or the way that they did things to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And And so I love that concept because it acknowledges that everything's related to everything and 
and that the leader's job is to stay relationally connected. And then the word support really stands out to me there. Support the team of people. That's assuming you've got a team of really capable people. Hmm. If you've got a, a team who need directive leadership because they don't know specifically what to do in their job, right. then you need to swing back more towards advice giving and directing. And as soon as that group starts to grow and become more skilled, though, you've got to move the continuum to more supportive, non-directive behaviors. Yeah, because I feel like that taken the wrong way, your organization could be suddenly become a hen house with chickens yep. with their heads cut off, yep. running around aimlessly. Right. Because, you know, you're just, everything is related to everything. We're going to take it as it comes. Like that kind of, like if you don't get a handle on this concept, you could run the other way with it. Like there has to be ground rules too. Yep. So you're saying establish the ground rules within a team and then maintain constant association with your team and constant check-in, like that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and th- think if, if HFL started all over again and we had a whole bunch of people who had never done international development and they came to the first staff meeting. If I used only supportive, non-directive behavior there, no one would know what to do. <laughs> and it would be like ambiguity, uncertainty. So now I got to start off teaching people about international development, showing them how to write proposals, telling them where the pens and paper are and mm-hmm. how to use the photocopier. That's all directive behavior that's needed to that team because they have lots of motivation, but but no skill related to the job that they're doing. Right. But the more skills they learn and the better they get at what they're doing, mm-hmm. which is also a leadership responsibility, the less directive I need to be. And the mm-hmm. more now I can be supportive of the experts in the room who are better at their jobs than I am. And that's that's every leader's dream, I would imagine. Some people just like to have followers and tell a group of five people what to do, and uh, and that's their prerogative. But that's I not... heard that eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so how does non-directive leadership work in a work or meeting environment? You know, we talked about a bunch of that already, but yeah, we did. Sorry, but I think I'm getting my questions confused here. But I think. No, there's some. There's a couple things that are important to bring out there. Okay, is is the designing of an agenda where some of the information is separate from some of the the the, the items for discussion. Where you, you might have a part of a meeting where, well, the Christmas party's here, the this thing is happening there. We're rolling out this new program on this date, and that stuff. That stuff's more for information and keeping those things separate from the parts of the meeting where you're really wanting to include and and be collaborative with all the people in the room. So um, bringing a topic to be discussed and then as a leader being prepared with questions you're going to ask mm. about those topics before you give any before you give any input. And so I think that's the that's especially if you've got highly skilled people. If you're more needing to be directive because you've got people who haven't developed the the knowledge yet to do their job, Mm -hmm. you might, as we said, in a meeting, need to provide more information and direction. Mm -hmm. But as that team skilled, you you start to do less of that. So I think applying what we've talked about to a meeting setting and with with the the specific skill about forcing yourself to listen, ask questions, be the last to speak. Okay, I wanna get into the the five archetypes. Yeah. because we all have them. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you don't think you do, you are it. Classic line. Um, so yeah, 
I want to give credit to whoever gave me these these archetypes, which I should have found his name, but it was from a YouTube clip on facilitation and okay. and, and challenges around facilitating a group. Um, and there were five peop- common personality types that pop up, and how do you deal with them? So l- let's briefly run through five of them yep. and t- tell me your tips. Okay. Okay. Number one, the alpha, hmm. the one likely the team leader, the one who always interjects saying just to clarify just just a quick question just a thought about that just you know like feeling like they need to gather everyone to be on the same page and kind of taking the reins from the facilitator yeah how do you deal with that one in a in a in a meeting specifically i think that there's some things you can do to send the signal that we want other people to speak less and we want other people to speak more and something like i would start off with something a little bit non-directive like, thanks for your input. We really appreciate that. I'd like to hear from other people in the room who haven't spoken yet. Um, if someone's got some self-awareness, that'll typically tell them, send the signal that maybe they're contributing a little too much. Like this? <laughs> Stop. Yeah. And if, if that person doesn't have a lot of self-awareness and doesn't mm-hmm. pick up that cue in a meeting, definitely it's a one-on-one conversation. I've seen some people become a little too harsh with the alphas in the room. And okay. shut them down. Okay. And then I've seen them, like, really minimize and and hurt them. Okay. Because that person that's that's the alpha that's bringing all the information, they really they they honestly mm-hmm. believe that this is their best contribution in the room. Right. That's that's their positive intent. Yeah. Good motives. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you don't want to come across like you're disapproving of the that person and why they're speaking a, a lot. So I would take them aside after say. You say some really great things in the meeting. We want that contribution. I'm trying to bring out some others and people who don't speak too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe could you be, could you wait to speak? Just like me as the leader in the room is waiting to speak. Can you maybe reform some of your points as questions mm. so that you can help draw people out into the room? And if that person's an alpha type leader, they'll actually respect the fact that you're wanting to include them as leader in that room rather than diminish their presence. Right. Cool. Okay, the next one, the know-it-all. So this can be described as the person who is maybe somewhat quiet throughout. It looks like they're really paying attention to throughout the meeting. And at the very end, when everyone wants to go, they raise their hand and say, so just to clarify, um, so that we're all like kind of like the alpha, but more at the end, and they, they just want to yeah. kind of um, make sure everyone's on the same page, that they have all the knowledge. Um, what about those people? Yeah, I think also... For the know-it-all, that that type of person, it could be that they're in the room resonating so much with what's going on, lots of experience, and they're just bubbling over to share their experience. Mm. Uh, Because, again, they honestly feel like what they're doing is the best contribution to the room. Uh, So similar to the alpha, I guess, it would be to help that person understand, either in the meeting or before, the same thing. Uh, How can you... How can you take your know-it-all and stay curious? Because the moment we're telling, we're not curious. Mm-hmm. And so, um, how can you, how can you stay curious and ask the other people in the questions or the questions to see whether they've understood it? And then maybe you don't need to be the one to summarize everything for everyone or, or contribute your knowledge. And so, personality types will factor huge here. Mm-hmm. But similar to the know-it-all, or similar to the the alpha, I think. The, uh, what I would have done beforehand, though, if someone's quiet the whole meeting, I would be working hard to bring them out during the meeting 
so that they're not waiting till the end to essentially tell everybody, yeah, I, I knew all this already. <laughs> that was my next one, the introvert, the one who is quiet throughout the meeting and will stay quiet the yeah. entire time. How do you, how do you draw it? Because they, ha- like we mentioned before, these people have amazing ideas. They'll come to you maybe later, maybe in a, in a week or so. Yeah. Say, oh, about that. I was thinking. So how do you draw it out of them in the moment? We had a person on one of our teams here who really, really smart. They, and I knew they were super smart, but they would very rarely contribute in a meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was figuring out why, because in my, I know I'm interested in everybody's opinion in a room. That's clear to me, but to this person that wasn't clear and wouldn't contribute. And I read, saw something that talked about the introverts, mm-hmm. and it said, ask them what would help them share more in a meeting rather than say, Hey, I'd really appreciate if you'd share in a meeting, right? Ask them what they need in order to contribute more in a meeting, probably before a meeting, just in a one-on-one conversation. So I did. And this person said to me, I want to be like, I want to be asked specifically for my ideas. Okay. And I'm like, really? I just said, I want everyone to, but what that person specifically needed was just to be asked. Okay. And so we get to a meeting and I would say, hey, so-and-so, haven't heard much from you. Yeah. Would love to hear your thoughts. And they would com- they would contribute. And so that was just what they needed. It was almost right. like they needed permission. Yes. Even okay. though they had it. Yeah. They needed the permission to be audible and obvious. Hmm. And that was an easy that was an easy thing for me to do, to care for that person and yeah. get them to talk more. Ask so, them. Ask. How yeah, simple. Yeah. Just yeah. ask them what would help. Hey, notice you're kind of quiet in this meeting. Mm-hmm. If someone changes their behavior really dramatically in a meeting, you've got someone who's a know-it-all and they get super quiet right away, then then ask them, hey, I saw you get, you've got super quiet in this meeting. What's going on for mm-hmm. you as we've had this discussion? So you have to determine whether that's something that can be done in the middle of a group or whether that's something one-on-one with somebody afterwards. Emotional intelligence. Yeah. But I, I knew, I didn't know, we had somebody here who was frustrated with me for for like a couple of years and I never knew it. Why? Because their, because their, how they dealt with conflict was to be very quiet, introverted, okay. thinking about it. Yeah. And if I would have learned better about how to handle the quiet, introverted person in a meeting, I would have said, hey, what's going on for you after that meeting? You were kind of quiet or how was that meeting for you? To, to, when when I realized they weren't contributing very much, I assumed they were okay. Oh, interesting. And they weren't. Okay. So so I think it's along the same lines, asking people, naming the dynamic, say what you're seeing, and then ask questions about what's behind it. Mm-hmm. The indecisive one. Oh, another. Oh, yep. Go for it. Back to the introvert. Yep. What really helps if you've got a room size of more than three or four people, yeah. for some discussions, make discussion groups th- Two, ah, two to three people. More safety, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, more safety. Once you get past, I think, five, six, seven, and more people in a room, they'll let the other people speak first because the chances are they'll be more extroverted alphas in the room mm-hmm. and they'll let them speak. But when someone's in a group of two or three, they feel more safety and more ability to talk about it. So if we're talking about an idea and I'm worried about that, I'll just break people into groups of two and three and get them to collate the information and bring it back they've had input but they haven't had to speak Mm -hmm. in a large room i love that personally i love the breakout groups i am way more likely to talk in like a two to three because then it's far less scary yeah (laughs) 
Not so many opinions flying your way when you give yours. And you know what I've noticed that? As a, as a faith-based organization, we do a lot of praying. Mm-hmm. And if we've got a... We did, we, 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 if you got a group of 10 people in a room and you ask for prayer requests, mm-hmm. it's like crickets. Mm-hmm. But if you break groups into two or three and you ask for prayer requests, everyone shares stuff that they want prayed yeah. for. So there's something about being in smaller groups that, that help people feel better able to contribute. Mm-hmm. Speaking of contributing, the indecisive ones. They give a lot of insights, but at the end of the day, they can't formulate a solid opinion or, or result. Um, I may classify myself as this one. That <laughs> <laughs> may or may not resemble me. Um, uh, I think ahead of time, the more the, the more you garner really good participation from everybody in the room as a listener, mm-hmm. the less people will end up being indecisive at the end of the meeting. Yeah. So again, it comes back to the facilitator or the leader to be a better facilitator and a better leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that we do, oftentimes... At the end of a meeting, someone will say, all right, everybody in the room think this is a good idea? What's the problem? With, what's the problem with that question? Well, it's, it's um, you're kind of telling somebody. Oh, you're telling? Yeah. But what options are you giving people? I, well, yes or no. Right. It's a binary question. Yeah. Everybody in the room okay with this decision? Yeah. First of all, you're using the word okay, and you're not really asking you're you're basically looking for confirmation for your idea. Right. And so it sounds like everybody everybody's going to agree to it because they're not going to disagree to it with that kind of a question depending on the leader in the room. Mm-hmm. And then that person walks out of the room indecisive. Hmm. And thinking about what what still bugged them about that meeting. Yeah. And so one thing that we've learned to do is this little I, I learned it from L David Marquette's book Leadership is Language or Language is Leadership, I can't remember the title. And one way to garner to see where everybody in the room is at with a decision is to say, okay, we're going to do a fist to five poll. Oh. We've done them here. Yeah. So so everybody gets to vote. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's we are going to engage in this new strategic direction for our organization. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, everyone okay with that? You say, we're going to take a fist to five poll here. And so um, you've got fist, fist means zero. Mm-hmm. Five means... A zero means totally not okay with the strategic direction and we shouldn't do it. Five means we should absolutely do that. I'm 100% convinced. And then you can vote, you know, one, two, three, or four, mm-hmm. somewhere in between that, that continuum of zero to five about how comfortable you are. So you'll say, all right, on three, everybody vote fist to five. And so you, you know, one, two, three, and you'll see everybody's fing- fingers that they're holding up. And, <laughs> and then, like, if you've got, people in the room voting three or four, you know they've got some hang-ups about what was discussed Hmm. and they're not convinced. Mm -hmm. So then a follow-up question is not, why didn't you vote five? Follow-up question is, what would have made you increase your vote from from two to three? Mm -hmm. What would have made you increase your vote from three to four? What would make you you more comfortable with this this decision? Someone says, I think we've got to consult our finance department. I think we've got to talk to our partners about that decision. Then I would be more convinced. And then you're 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 not presenting a binary question. You're giving the people to gauge their their level of comfort on a decision on a continuum, which gives you the ability to figure out what would help them become more comfortable with that decision. Mm-hmm. So you can do a public fist to five where everybody sees that. If it's a really kind of a crunchy item and people 
want an anonymity, you could actually do a fist to five on a piece of paper where someone can vote zero to five, hand mm-hmm. them in. And then as a facilitator, then you need some really good questions to figure out what to do with that because probably you as a leader need to do more work to improve on everyone's buy-in on whatever it is you're discussing. It's a really great um, alternative to a yes or no situation. Yeah. Okay, what about the negative ones? The naysayers, the ones who interject all the time? Yep. Yeah, really good question because there's likely one in every group or more. And so... um, that that there's lots of ways to answer that question that would go beyond our scope today but but with the people in the room that are chronically no chronically negative like almost like uh they're gonna say no and give me a reason to say yes that's kind of their default to whatever's going on in a room especially if they feel the room pulling to one towards one direction they've they've got to be the no people and it's not because they woke up that morning thinking about how to frustrate the team today (laughs) even though it seems like it yeah but it's important for a leader to know what's behind the no like what's going on for that person in the the no Mm -hmm. and again depending on the room dynamics level of safety it's asking Mm -hmm. more questions hey you're you're constantly opposing something in this discussion what's going on for you what's behind your no what do you think we're missing whole bunch of good questions um and then it could be the one-on-one conversation again with someone after the meeting mm-hmm. and pointing out the same thing. And, and, and it's important how you point it out. You don't want to go and say, you're always negative for everything that we talk about um, because they could argue with that mm-hmm. conclusion. What I would say instead was, I'm noticing <clears throat> that whenever we talk about an issue, you take a contrary position. Is that, you know, is that accurate for you? Is that How does that sit with you? Because mm-hmm. they can't argue with my perception or my right. my feelings. So I can approach it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I can ask some more questions with them on one-on-one about what's going on within within them and the organization and personality. And I would say, what are you trying to accomplish with the no? Um, in one situation that I was a part of, when I asked that question, the answer was, I think there's a lot of visionaries in the room and I, and I really believe I need to keep keep our feet on terra firma here and mm. um and again positive intent right they like they felt the need it was their obligation to keep everybody grounded yeah uh and and to a degree that that, that was that was true that that was their role mm-hmm. um but then have a follow-up conversation of if you're going to bring a negative opinion or you're going to bring a no mm-hmm. then also bring another piece mm-hmm. to the meeting right. which could contribute to how the conversation could become a yes, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so that that's one way. Um, and then sometimes, if it's chronic enough, it goes on long enough for a certain amount of years. Uh, sometimes you need to have some serious questions mm. about whether that person really should be a part of the organization and the culture, because if you've got a chronically anxious person, a chronically frustrated person, and they end up determining too many decisions in the organization uh you're going to discourage everyone else yeah. who are there with some great ideas yeah and so it might require some conversations about culture and fit and sure um because the only thing that is more harder than people who work that way are the people that allow them to work that way and so so yeah uh, those are some tough conversations but you don't want to jump to that too quick. You want to see if through your good facilitation, non-directive skills, 
Right. You can get that person to become more pro-social in meetings. Yeah. I saw a TikTok the other day. <laughs> All my good information comes from there. <laughs> of a, a leader who is kind of like a TED Talk type thing. And she yep. was just saying, I fired our, our most highly skilled individual. And everyone was like, why are you firing them? And blah, blah, blah. And she said, I knew they had to be fired. Because, and I knew it was the right decision because the next morning... She, wo- or she walked into the office and everyone was happier. Everyone was more productive. Everyone felt like a burden was lifted. Yep. So, yeah, sometimes it's for the sake of your organization, culture. Yep. Those tough conversations have to be had. Absolutely. Um, that, that concludes the five and also kind of this podcast. Yep. But is there anything else you wanted to add to this, this topic on facilitation? Takeaway point, maybe. I think just in summary... If specifically a leader who's used to being directive mm-hmm. um, can practice some of the basic skills of being curious, staying curious, be the last to speak, um, don't drop your proposed solution to a discussion on the table uh, until the very end, and you might find out you don't need to. I think that I, I think that that is a those, those just those. Two or three skills will help you move towards being more of a, a guide on the side than the sage on the stage. Move you towards being a facilitator, non-directive leader, even though you are maybe the constituted authority person in the organization. Mm-hmm. That never has that that should never really have to come into play. Okay. Sometimes it does. There's been a few times where I've had to make calls that didn't go over well with some people. And of course that's always going to be needed when leaders need to make tough calls. But the more you practice those non-directive skills, facilitation skills, the, the less often you'll have to do that because of the brilliance in the room mm. that comes out. And, and again, from a, from a self-awareness or, or teachability perspective, am I as a leader feeling at all threatened because of the brilliance in the room? Uh, if I am, it's going to be very hard for me to be a facilitator because at the end of the day, I want people to know how smart I am and I've got all the answers to the world's problems hmm. or the organization's problems. Uh, that's another podcast because this moving from directive to non-directive needs to it needs to be a person who's got self-awareness, teachability, uh, someone to talk about these tendencies with to figure out how to move away from that. But it'll be worth it every single time. It's pretty glorious when you realize there's the corporate brilliance in the room far exceeds your own. Cool. Thanks, Dave. That's all I got today. Thanks. Great discussion. Thanks for listening to What in the World, where we seek to educate and inspire. Here at Hungry for Life, we are passionate about your group having a global impact in eradicating needless suffering. For more information, head over to our website at hungryforlife.org. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you may listen to podcasts. Tune in every other week for another conversation about what is happening at Hungry for Life.